Thank you, Jesus. Well, it gets a whole lot better when you get our focus on Jesus, right? I don't know what different people came in here with. Sometimes it's just the cares of this world. Can they get heavy? The cares of life can just get heavy. And sometimes you can't pinpoint a specific thing, but you just walk around with a sense of heavy. It's just heavy sometimes. It's, if it, maybe it's your life is great, but maybe you're carrying some burdens for folks in your family. Whatever it is, life without Jesus gets real heavy. And I love how my wonderful wife Elaine opened the service and just asked us to bring... <laughs> ask us to just bring our cares to him and to just lay them at his feet because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We weren't created to walk this life by ourselves on our own strength. It wasn't God's intention, especially now that sin has come in and contaminated this planet. We have to walk this life with the strength and the light and the courage that Jesus puts in us by the Spirit of God to walk this life in. If you're trying to do it on your own strength, then it's easy to question, is this life really worth living? As we sang that chorus, I, I just felt in my heart there may be folks watching online or folks here this morning where... That's actually been a question, a real question in your awareness. Is this life really worth living? I'm not going to pinpoint anyone. I don't want to single anybody out. This is a, between you and Jesus because he's the one who brings meaning to your life. It's because he lives we can face tomorrow. It's because he lives that all fear is gone. It's because he lives and I know who holds the future that I can walk through today. I remember being younger than I am now. I'm still young. I've learned to not talk about. It's funny, you know, you, this week was a rough week for me. I think I popped a rib just working under a sink, you know, and I'll be 50 next Sunday. And so there, so in case you were wondering, now you don't have to wonder anymore. Yeah, just a little, you know, trying to little shim a little thing and pop. And it's like right in the middle where my rib must connect to my spine somewhere's in there and you know, you can't cough, you can't hardly breathe, you can't sleep for a few nights, and you just realize this, this is a temporary reality that we have here. It's temporary. And the younger you are when you embrace that reality, you can begin to build a life of faith that actually looks significant and actually matters to heaven, actually matters to the one who's watching over our lives to make sure that we're living up to the full potential that he placed within us to live to. It's not easy when you're young because you're invincible, and I remember all that, and it's amazing how quickly you can unlearn some of that when a few decades happen to you. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about this morning? In his presence when we're worshiping, it's just age goes away, everything goes away, all of a sudden it's just brought back to what it was meant to be, a life lived in his presence. And it's just special, it's precious, and it's the purpose that we're all put here for. The world's got purpose for your life. They'll be happy to utilize your vitality and your days here for their own agendas. God would also like to intervene on your behalf and cause you to live a life or make an opportunity for you to live a life for him. All I think we can say for those of us who've given our lives to Christ is that we all could say we wish we'd given them our lives sooner. Couldn't we say that? <laughs> couldn't we all say that? We just wish it was a little sooner because you come to realize, ah, this is when it begins to have meaning and purpose and when it begins to be something that's worth living because he lives. Amen. Because he lives. 
We could have sang that for another 15 minutes. I don't know. I was just feeling that song. It's because he lives, folks. And I'm just talking for a minute because I'm trying to find a, a spot where all this going on in here will settle just for a minute. <laughs> I love the presence of the Lord when we all gather together and just lift his name up. Sometimes it's for you and sometimes it's for folks that may have just walked in and you don't know what contemplations are in their mind and in their heart. And I'm just being brought back to that. Maybe you don't know the meaning of life. You've not found it yet. When that question comes to you and you say, is this life really worth living? Is it really worth the living? I want you to hear, it's only worth living because he lives. It's not because your friends live. It's not because nothing else can bring meaning to your life. It's him alone because he came out of a tomb. He was meant to stay dead, but who knows that he didn't. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. You know, this morning, as we sat in, in class this morning, listened to Bob Iannuso Sr. Yeah, there's two of them, in case you didn't know. There's a junior and a senior. In case one wasn't enough, we've got two Bob Iannusos in our church, and we're doubly blessed for that. As I sat listening to the class, as, as he and his wonderful wife, Barbara, were presenting just some some videos that we watched this morning and then some commentary and just getting the class involved with trying to feel out what, what do we know, what do we need to know, how much have we learned, how much more do we have to learn. I just felt like, you know, I just need to be able to play at least one of these videos this morning for us, and I was going to try to save it for the end, but I'm scattered all over the place anyway right now, so it's probably a good time to play it. This will actually um, maybe give us something to chat about for the next few minutes of, of service. It's only about, I think, 15 minutes long, 13, 15, some, 13 minutes long, see? That's the teacher. You know, it's 13 point. You probably tell me how many seconds it is, too, if I really press, press you, but he doesn't want to show off. Um, but it's just something that it triggered some thoughts within the class. We had some great discussion, great commentary. Um, and maybe as we watch this, it'll just trigger some thoughts. I'm just trying to give you a flavor for some of what happens here at 9 o'clock. I know some people really struggle with that extra hour, but you guarantee a bagel because you get first access to the bagels. If you came late today, I don't know, we might have ran out again on bagels. Um, that's kind of like the, the thing to make sure you get here early to get. They're good bagels, too. Um, I didn't get one again, so I'm just, I'm still feeling a little left out, neglected, whatever, but it's probably my fault for not ordering more, so sorry. You'll, you'll save one for me? All right. So without further ado, Bob, could I ask you to just come up, say a few things, introduce this, this video that um, you played for us this morning, we, one of the ones, and just... I'd like you guys to just meet. We have Pastor Rich and Diane Caliendo. They oversee the, the class that happens up here at 9. Today was the second time Bob stepped in, and we kind of followed this format of a couple videos and some questions and answers. It was just very powerful. I want to give you a flavor for that. And then um, also encourage you at 9 o'clock, we have discovery class happening downstairs. As Bob figures out the microphone, got it? We have discovery class happening downstairs. That's where some of the baptisms came from this morning. Folks who just were learning about water baptism, they've been believers their whole lives, some of them, but just never made that step. So you learn about it, you see scripture on it, and there you go. Um, and there's also the 9 o'clock class happens downstairs, School of the Supernatural. And that's Pastor David and Nolia Cordo. They, they do that. There's usually a room full right underneath us, um, just getting into the things of the Spirit. What are, what, what's our full potential? Does anybody... Some people don't want to know it because they're scared by it. I don't know. Life without exploring the fullest potential of what we're capable of, um, I don't know. It's a, it's, a life, it's a life less lived. A life less lived. How's that? 
right? Live to the fullest. So life less live. Bob, go ahead and cue us up here. All right. Thank you, Pastor. Um, just a quick word about Sunday school as well. Um, you go through life all week long, right? Getting out of bed and doing what you got to do, right? To take, to take care of everything in your life, right? You got to go to work. You got to go to school, right? You got to do things. And sometimes you just have to drag yourself out of bed to get it done, right? Am I, am I telling the truth, right? Well, you know what Sunday school is about? It's about dragging your spirit out of bed. And that is probably more important than dragging this thing out of bed to do anything else. It's really, it's exciting when we're here. We learn so much. Some of the stuff we learn is like, okay, it's up there. But Pastor Rich, Pastor Dave, and Pastor Chris and teaching the classes, you know, their heart is for us to learn and for our spirits to be ignited. And that's what Sunday school is doing, okay? It's igniting your spirit, okay? We all went through COVID, right? That was a really tough time, right, for a lot of people. But you know what? You need to get that spirit going. Take the mask off your spirit, okay, and start growing. So the video we're going to watch is about truth um, by uh, Chris McDowell. No, Sean McDowell and um, a woman, uh, her name is McLaughlin. Um, they're going to talk about why we believe what we believe. There's evidence for why we believe what we believe. There's evidence about Jesus, okay? He came into the world, and in, this, in our spirit, after we get born again, the spirit teaches us a lot of things about Jesus and, you know, things we might not ordinarily know. But these guys, they're, what call, they're, what, they're what's called apologeticists. Okay, that's a really big word, but what it is is they're going to talk about the Christian faith, what it is, and why we believe what we believe, okay? So we're ready to go with the truth. I think so often folks have grown up in the church being told, well, you just have to believe, as if that's what faith is. I don't think that's what faith is. I grew up in a Christian home in a small town in the mountains in San Diego called Julian. My parents were missionaries, and so they were believers long before I was even born. I'd say my parents lived an unattractive life in the sense that they lived out what they preached. And so I believed it. And I was a freshman in college. So it was like mid-90s when there was no Google yet, but you could search stuff. And I'm searching around, and I find these websites dedicated to debunking my dad's apologetics, the books I'd learned growing up. And it kind of flipped my world upside down a little bit. And I kind of figured it was time to talk to my dad and give him a sense of where I was at. And I said, Dad, I want to know what's true, but I don't know that I'm convinced Christianity is fully true. And he didn't miss a beat. He looked at me and he goes, son, I, I think that's great. And I remember thinking in my head, like, what, you know, what is going on? Are you, did you hear what I actually said? This great apologist who spent his life defending the Christian faith, his son is like, yeah, I'm not sure I buy it. And he just said to me, he goes, you can't live on my convictions. You got to figure out what you think is true and follow it. I'm confident if you fall after truth, you'll follow or keep following after Jesus because Jesus is the truth. 
And honestly, looking back, I think that's exactly what I needed to hear. It was a significant, pivotal moment where I felt like I'm going to own my own faith, figure out why I believe what I believe, and see if this makes sense. When we compare Jesus to the other options that the world has for us, he will always shine more brightly. As Christian parents, we sometimes want to take the, the posture of sort of protecting our kids from anti-Christian ideas. I sort of want to do the opposite. I want to say, hey, let's, let's look at these ideas together and see how Jesus actually makes much more sense to the world than, than these ideas do. I, I never want them to be shutting their minds down in order to follow Jesus. I want them to be kind of lighting their minds up with the truth of, of who he is. I think there's been a fundamental misunderstanding, and, it, and again, it, it's one that Christians have often bought into as well, which is that because Christianity and the gospel message is so simple in one sense that a small child or somebody with an intellectual disability could grasp it, that therefore Christianity is anti-intellectual. When in fact, Christianity is, by any reasonable measure, the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. So we can talk about the ways in which Christianity was the sort of seedbed from which science grew. We can talk about the fact that some of the greatest literature has been written by Christians, not in spite of their faith, but because of it. We can talk about the fact that some of the greatest philosophy has been developed by Christians because of their faith. And that extends to every area of academic discipline. Hands down, problem of evil is the biggest barrier that people have to belief in God. We tend to view through the lens that God wants to bless me financially, with my home, with my job, with a certain number of kids. And so when suffering comes in, we think God is somehow cursing us or he doesn't care about us. God's metric of what matters is different than the metric of the world. The most important thing is that we come into a loving relationship with him. That's the ultimate good. And God cares about our character. So would God allow evil and suffering if it draws us into an eternal relationship with him and forms our character? I think the answer is yes. The difficulty is, it's not just an intellectual question, it's also an emotional question. And I actually think when most people ask, why does God allow evil and suffering? The vast majority of the time lurking behind that is some kind of hurt, some kind of disappointment, and some kind of pain. I've made the mistake a lot of launching into a defense rather than listening and showing comfort and understanding. So when I'm with somebody, I want to try to find out as best as I can. Were you on the internet having a debate, reading philosophy 101, and this is an intellectual question? Because we can have that. Or is this an emotional question you're struggling with and then deal with it appropriately? And oftentimes, it's a combination of both. C.S. Lewis, who said, God whispers in our pleasure he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. As Christians, we don't believe in a suffering-free life. And, and one of my favorite places to go in the Bible is in, in John chapter 11. Two of Jesus' closest friends, a woman named Mary and Martha, send him a message because their brother Lazarus is, is sick. And they specifically say, Lord, the one you love is ill. Not, not even Lazarus, the one you love. And when he got the message, he didn't come. We see Jesus intending for Lazarus to die and going to meet with his sister, Martha, who says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, um, your brother will rise again. You can kind of 
sense her thinking, well, what about now, Jesus? Like, she didn't send a message to Jesus to raise Lazarus at the last day. She, she wanted her brother healed now. And that's when Jesus looks at her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So, so Jesus has allowed Lazarus to die on purpose, partly in order to have that conversation with Martha, so that she will understand that he is not just the means to the end of, of her suffering being taken away, her brother being brought back, but that actually relationship with him is the most important thing she could possibly have. I don't know why God allows every act of evil and suffering. I can't know that. We might not know that until eternity. But I know that God is good. And I know that God's sovereign. And I know in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God can intend and use for good. It's only in Christianity where God can say, I understand. Where is God when I suffer? He's right there suffering with us. But because Jesus rose from the grave, we are promised that every tear will be wiped away and that God never let go of the steering wheel. He will redeem evil and suffering ultimately for good. One of the big mistakes that people make is to think that science is offering us fundamentally alternative hypotheses to belief in a creator God. And so even if people haven't spent a lot of time really thinking about science, they'll have that background idea that smart, sciencey people don't believe in God and they've got the evidence to back it up. In actual fact, if we look back over the, the history of science since the scientific revolution, what we'll find is that the people who, who first crafted what we now call science, did so not as an alternative hypothesis to belief in God, but actually because they believed in a God who was both rational and free. And so, you know, they looked at the scriptures and thought, well, here is a God who, who gives universal moral laws, and it's clearly kind of rational and intelligent. So maybe he's created the universe also along consistent laws that we could discern as, as creatures made in his image. And so they started looking for those underlying principles of the universe. But because they also believed from the Bible that God is free, they knew that he could create the universe any way he wanted. So the only way to figure out what those underlying principles are is actually to go and look, kind of explore and investigate. So figuring out more of the laws of science doesn't squeeze God out. It actually helps us to see what he's done more clearly and rejoice in him and worship him more. If somebody asked me why I believe Jesus rose from the grave, I'd probably start by just pointing to some basic facts that historians agree on. And one is that we know Jesus died by crucifixion. It's in all four Gospels. It's in other biblical writings like Paul's writings and Peter. Even writers like Tacitus, a Roman, and Josephus, a Jew, reference the death of Jesus. What's interesting then, we have very good reason to believe Jesus was buried. We actually have good reason to believe we know where the tomb is today, interestingly enough. We can trace it back to very early times. And there's no other alternate burial accounts whatsoever. But even Joseph of Arimathea, from the very group of people that condemned Jesus to death, why would they invent somebody who would have been known, who was a part of a party that was antagonistic to Jesus, set him up as a hero? It makes no sense. It's much more reasonable to believe that he was buried. So when Jesus died, we have good reason to believe he's buried, and then we have good evidence that the tomb is empty on the third day. All four Gospels report was discovered by women. Now this is significant because the first century was a patriarchal culture. Men were typically more educated, and their testimony was considered more significant in a court of law. Why would the apostles 
who are telling this story they think is true that rests upon a resurrection invent women as the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb if it weren't true. It'd be totally counterproductive. The best explanation is they're reporting what they really thought happened, that the tomb was empty and women discovered it, so they reported it as it happened. Now, we know Jesus died, buried, tomb is empty. Yet we have these appearance claims. We have the appearance of the 500, we have the appearance of the apostles, we have the appearance to the seven. So if you don't think they saw the risen Jesus, you're gonna have to come up with other explanation like, well, they had hallucinations. Well, hallucinations can't explain the empty tomb. You're also gonna have a hard time explaining hallucination, which is an individual subjective experience, how Jesus appeared to groups. So you start to piece together these basic facts. The only explanation that accounts for all the facts that we know is that Jesus rose from the grave. In addition to those more intellectually rooted reasons that people have, a lot of folks have more morally rooted reasons for not being compelled by Christianity. So they may be aware of the history of Christian complicity and racism. I actually totally understand that. And, and you're right for being appalled. But if we look at what the Bible says, we'll find that the original basis for love across racial, cultural, and ethnic difference actually comes to us from the Bible. We'll find that Christianity was a, a multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement from the very beginning. And that today, Christianity is the most diverse belief system in the world, as well as being the largest. I wish all non-Christians would say, give me the best evidence, I'm gonna read the Bible, I'm gonna examine it, but they're busy, they've got other stuff in their hearts. So many are making judgments about Christianity based on how we live. And based on the data, there's a lot of negative perceptions about Christians. So I encourage people and try to do this myself, build relationships with people and love them, whether they ever have that spiritual conversation or not. I think we're called to share our faith in Jesus with others, to pray for them, to love them. And love sometimes means telling them hard truths that they don't wanna hear. And to trust the Lord with their response. The other thing I found is with people, I try to take a longer term perspective. I want people who are not open in a certain spiritual state in their life. And maybe something goes bad, maybe when they are open, maybe I will come to mind because the way I've treated them, hopefully I've been thoughtful, that when they're open, maybe they would come to me. And fortunately in my life, I've had a few people who have. We will likely be a small piece in anybody else's story. And that's great. So we should look for those opportunities to, to be that, that small piece in the puzzle for somebody else. Super. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate you. Uh, just wanted to give you a flavor. We're not going to discuss that. If you want to discuss such things, you've got to come to class at 9 o'clock. Um, but hopefully it gets you thinking, it gets you realizing that there's many different ways that people, uh, even within faith, within Christian faith, um, have experienced the Lord, have their own personal understandings of the way things are, and can articulate that. It's something we can all grow and we can all recognize that um, there's learning to be had, there's learning to be learned. I need to work on grammar, I guess. I don't know. I, 
I, my, we homeschool our kids, and so sometimes I'm overhearing some of the lessons and stuff. And I mean, it's just the laws of grammar are just so... I was trying to think, what was the one? Oh, um, compound words. Like, remember compound words? Like, it, like there's, but there's rules about that. It can't just be a word that can be broken into two. Like, carpet is not a compound word. Like, why? Somebody made a rule, carpet, car, and a pet. It's two separate things, but it's not a compound word. Like, these rules are just so indiscriminate, and I just don't know why. We have to complicate everything. It's, it should be a compound word, shouldn't it? A car and a pet. It's two things put together in one word. I don't know. But there's, you know, if you, read, if you read the paragraph that explains why that's not a compound word, it makes sense to some people. For me, it's just, you, you lose me in, in grammar, but try not to let it affect the, the preaching of the gospel. So I'm going to jump in um, and just continue in, in Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're just, we were just getting started. I don't know if anyone's been reading ahead, as I've been encouraging you to do. Again, this is one of those eyewitnesses. This is one of the folks that Jesus shows up to. He's one of the people who is an eyewitness of Jesus' arrest, his trial. Um, we know that John was at the actual death on the cross. It was Peter potentially watched from a distance. We know that there was the women that watched Jesus actually expire and then go to his grave. Um, Peter's one of these folks that was just, he was a part of the mix. And sometimes when you're in the middle of something great that's happening, um, the regular emotions of life were a part of his life. He felt fear when he was being challenged about him having been with Jesus, and he denied Jesus, even cursed, even acted out of who he had become as a new creation in Christ, and, and went back to his old ways. It, it, it's just, he was in the middle of the story that because of his writings, among others, we have proof. We have solid scientific proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that his claims of being deity and being human were borne out, at the cross and at the empty tomb, and we've got written record of these things. And so Peter, as a fisherman, he's writing these things down, and I've just been so asking the Lord, I've been asking him, just show me the simple text that I'm supposed to pull from these stories. We all should know the gospel. You were a sinner. You needed to be saved. You needed a, a substitute, etc. and hopefully you've believed, and your heart's been made alive in Christ, and you've come to a place of having saving faith through Jesus Christ and what he's done for you by his grace through faith, not of yourselves, lest you'd be boasting, but it's God's gift to you. And so the gospel is there. We can summarize it, but what was the heart? What was the, if we don't understand the heart and the intent behind some of the writings of, this, of the New Testament scriptures, it's easy in our advanced, um, super educated, super hyper-intelligent, uh, modern minds to just begin to nitpick and disclaim some of the things like, oh, that doesn't fit with what I already know to be true. And we, we elevate ourselves to this place of having learned everything, and we're just reading the New Testament trying to see if they've come up to our standard of knowing what God's really all about and how it needs to be presented. And if you can get past being arrogant and thinking that way and just humbly go back to the Word and say, what was the, what was the heart behind this? Some of these things are hard to understand and to grasp, but why would someone put their neck on the line and write these things, knowing that many of these folks ended up giving their lives for their faith? They were martyred, they were executed, some tortured before they finally died, simply because they would not renounce the name of Jesus Christ as the one that they were following, as the person who they had committed their lives to and who had made them new by spiritual rebirth. And so these people didn't just write random words to see what would happen. They wrote what in the core of who they were, they knew were what the next generations and the churches that were just a city away needed to hear. 
They couldn't just jump on a podcast or something and just spread their, their message around. It had to be written down. It had to be preserved. It had to be carried. It had to be read because sometimes the folks that these letters were brought to, um, it would be included in there. Please read this aloud to so-and-so because many times folks didn't read. The average people didn't always have the ability to read then. It was a very different culture, very different time on planet Earth. And so when we look at what they've written, it's, it's, it's so important that we ask the Holy Spirit to just show us by, by what, the way only he can through revelation so that we can embrace these words as true and as life-changing and as the seeds of what can grow within us an incorruptible reality that the world can't have access to except by faith. Because if we don't do that, then we just we scrutinize them, we're offended by them, we say, oh, this can't be, and we just say, well, that's an outdated book, and we've got to be careful which parts of that we use, because if we do, we're going to offend everybody in the day that we live. And that's such a powerless way to look at Scripture. It's such a, it, it's, it's unfortunately quite common. It's becoming more popular. Um, it's even currently in many of the agenda of people who think that way to make parts of the Bible illegal and to start redacting pieces of Scripture. It's not, I mean, in America, we think, wow, that seems crazy. We've always had the Bible as, as a core document of ours, and yet just look at the parts of the world where communism has taken over, and they've already done it. I mean, there's Bibles in China that are approved by the, 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 the state government, and they don't read like ours do. It's called, they don't even just put black lines and redact things. They, they're just gone. They're rewritten in a way that's suitable so that people will just worship the government instead of worshiping God. And I just want to just... Let that be personal. Let that be your prayer. If we, if we touch on something, if we read through things as we go through this in the next season of, uh, of ministering here at the church, take it to the Lord. I'm happy to hear about it too. I'm happy to have a conversation with you. But if, if a piece of scripture deeply offends you and troubles you, there's only two possibilities. You're right and the word of God is wrong. I'm glad for a few giggles, but some people, that's the age we live in. They've already decided that. If you go into any kind of academia, they've already taken that stance. They read the Bible to see which parts of it are applicable, which parts of it are just crazy and need to be criminalized. Or the Bible was right, the Word of God is true, and you have some changes to make. I mean, it's only one of the two, those are the only two possibilities. If there's a conflict between two things, one's, okay, hopefully that doesn't need explanation. But I think we, as we read through Peter, the uh, first chapter, we got up to um, the first part of verse 13. And I'll just read that, and then we'll continue reading on a few verses. I'll pause throughout. I'd, I'm not a, uh, a Bible scholar in the sense of breaking apart every single word into the Hebrew and Greek. I love listening to folks that have access to all that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's awesome. I, it intrigues me. I love learning the depth of what's written in the Word, but I'm not going to do an exhaustive word-by-word reading of of Peter this time through. But we will pause here and there to try to gather some of the key points, I think, that the Spirit's trying to speak through this apostle of faith. And so in verse 13, it said, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 It's a continuation of the first sentence and says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So we'll go back to verse 14, which is the second part of the opening statement about relying fully upon the grace that's brought to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ. But verse 14 offers 
it, it opens up explanation of what that or how and how that's worked out. And so he says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. As obedient children, right there we're going to have a problem in today's culture, okay? Just saying. Throw something at me if it makes you feel better, but I'm reading what's here. I'm not, I, if I wrote this and then came in like, Pastor Josh has a new revelation, then throw stuff at me, uh, that'll be on me. I'm just reading what's the antiquity of, of faith, the foundation of faith was based on certain things that the culture understood at the time. If our culture is degraded to the point where they're no longer understandable to us, can we now no longer understand and embrace parts of Scripture? Or do we have to identify that we've, we've shifted so far from what should be just baseline that we've got to get back to certain things so that we can embrace the depths of what's really included in Scripture for our own instruction and wisdom and understanding and learning as we've read in Timothy. But this is, this is a very basic thing. As obedient children, it's hard to, uh, to even, people don't actually sometimes expect their children to obey. That's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> I love when the air kind of, you feel some of the air go out of, of, of a room. It used to really intimidate me. Now it just kind of makes me giggle. I don't know which was worse. but uh, <laughs> Even in the way children obey their parents, we ought to obey and submit ourselves to this new reality that the gospel brings to our lives. I mean, it's, 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 it's hard for us to understand. I mean, it's, it's part of the mark of our day. You can use it as a, a negative or you can realize it as something that proves the day that we're in is the day that it is. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 2 says this, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. If you think that's, you know, supposed to be one of those, oh, this is a long list, we'll just pick the five that we can handle and let the other one... If we don't, if we, it's easy to say our Father in heaven, and we, we say Father, but if we don't understand that when you say Father, that requires a certain posture, means that's my dad, that means what he says goes. It means what he says goes. And that's hard for this generation to hear. We don't want to, we don't want to be confronted with these things, but the list goes on, unthankful, unholy, other things that are in there. But just disobedient to parents would be a mark of the fact that society as we know it in the last times is going to be so dangerous that this is one of the signs that we'll see. I was just realizing this, it's kind of a, trying to make it funny, but going in Sam's yesterday looking for a birthday present for my five-year-old, just turned five, and, and uh, it's amazing. If you go down any of the main aisles, like the main arteries, it doesn't matter if it's the snack section, what's on this side of what's on that aisle is all toys. And it's all year round. Because I'm telling you, if a kid wants something now, they're going to get it. Because they're going to create a stink until they get what they want. That's just not, that's just basic observation. And it's, it's something that for us to recognize. When God looks at us as children, we want to just say, oh, I'm accepted, I'm loved, I'm everything. That's all true through Jesus Christ. But then there's this growth thing of kids need to grow up and learn like, well, we aren't buying every single toy on this aisle. In fact, we're not buying any today. And if you're going to have a bad attitude about it, you can kiss your birthday present goodbye or whatever you would normally uh, your approach is might be different. That might be too harsh for you. Sorry. <laughs> now, I thank God for Pastor Chris and Carrie because they hold, I mean, when those children up here worshiping and you can hear their voices over everything else, it's because they've been taught and trained. 
kids that are distracting, kids that just aren't interested, and they're disruptive to that. Those, they have to be taken aside and talked to. It's not just okay for kids to be kids. Because kids to be kids by what, without instruction and, and containment becomes just chaotic. It's just how it is, folks. It's good that most of you are smiling about it. But in the end, in the end, Peter's writing, and, and several times in his writing, he talks about how this is the, we're wrapping this thing up, it's wrapping. They truly believe Jesus was coming back to that generation. They fully believe that within their lifetime, they were going to see the return of Jesus Christ. And a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. It's still only been a couple of days since they were here writing what they wrote. And so it's just the eternal reality of times existing here as a created entity, as a dimension of sorts, almost like the three dimensions, then you add time, you have another dimension. But it's just... It's something we can't get our gray matter around, but by faith we have to understand God, one of the parts of the video I love, God has a different metric of what's important to him than what we have. We, in this world, it's all about comfort. We want comfort as king. You want to get people to come to your restaurant or your establishment, just make it super, super comfortable, and they're going to come. Because we're, comfort's king on this, in this world, and there's nothing wrong with comfort as long as it doesn't supersede what the gospel requires of our life which is obedience to the call of the gospel, the obedience to Christ. And it's not always comfortable. There are seasons that we have to go through that sometimes are very, very uncomfortable. And yet, in that moment, the voice of the Lord can be so loud to us because it's in our discomfort that we're actually listening for what he's got to say. And so I just, you know, I just think it's interesting that he, what he uses here to open up and explain what he means by the way that we have to... Uh, think and, and follow and rest our hope fully on God's grace is that we do it not as haphazardly, but we do it as obedient children. Obedient children means that they do what the parents are saying, even if they don't like what the parents are saying. It's sad that there's been such a comfort, comfort gospel message presented to the West because it so suited the abundance that was poured out over this nation, I believe, because of the blessing of the way that we have a legacy and a foundation in truth, and that's been hijacked, unfortunately. But because of that, there's been decades and centuries of blessing that has blessed America, where we are the place that the world is trying to get to. People want to knock America and say it's all this and it's all that. Well, then why the heck is the entire world trying to get here? Why do we have to have fences up? Other countries have fences up to keep their people in. If you haven't traveled, you need to travel. You need to go out and see the rest of the world. We're blessed. But a lot of that is because of a, of a legacy that's been carried through from the founding of this nation, which was founded by people of faith who believed that the Bible was the true, unvarying word of God. But it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. There's a lot that children do just because they don't know any better. And then there's some stuff that they do that they're fully aware. And the discipline is always different based on... Was it an honest mistake? Was it deceptive? But he's saying we're not to conform ourselves to the former lusts as we did when we were ignorant. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Um, I mean, most of these things are fairly straightforward. I don't know how much um, explanation or expansion they need. But holy literally just means to be set apart. Can we start with that? I'm not, again, not going Greek and Hebrew, but holy means to be set apart. Reserved for a specific purpose. Our baseline purpose here as believers is not to be conformed to the systems of this world. 
but to be transformed. Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Don't be conformed to the ways of this world. Peter's saying the same thing that Paul says. We were not to be conformed as we were and when we formerly desired the things only of this world, but we're conformed to the kingdom of heaven. And the thing about being set apart for that purpose is that if we drift, it's not saying that we never make a mistake and we never get disoriented and we pursue the wrong purpose. But when we do, the baseline we come back to is not now suddenly I've messed up so now I'm part of the world again. It's I've messed up. I've forgotten that I'm set apart. I forgot that God set me aside for his purpose and kingdom. And then you jump back into that and you begin to continue on your new foundation, your new baseline. Some people are, it's hard because they spend so much time on either side, it's hard to know What's their baseline? That's what, his, that's what Peter's trying to write to. This is the first century church. He's already addressing these same issues that we can see thousands of years later, and we can see it in our own lives if we're not continuously in the Word, letting the Spirit protect our minds, taking thoughts captive, etc., all, all those things we do. But it's, what, I did a little bit of, of looking this up. In the Hebrew, the word holy is kodesh. Kodesh. Ruach Hodesh is one of the ways that you say Holy Spirit. It means to be set apart or exalted. And it's interesting because the word for marriage is kiddushin, which is the setting apart of the spouse uniquely for the other partner in, in, in the marriage. And so when he's, Peter's saying, be holy, don't forget that God has reserved you. He has set you apart. He's, he's called you through this gospel, but he, he, he expects you to live holy. He expects you to live a life that puts him and his purpose in front of what the world has. If you're con- There's two choices. You're conformed with what the world wants from your life, or you're set apart. You realize God has done it. You've said yes, and you're now set apart. You're holy unto the Lord. Your purpose is now in the same way when you get married. Your purpose is now to fulfill the needs of your spouse. It's to make them a success. It's to make their life fulfilled. If two people do that for each other, it's heaven on earth. God knows some keys about making things work that we think in our modern culture, it's all about we got to have boundaries and freedoms and you got to have, this is your nights and this is my nights. That stuff's all rubbish. When you live together, my wife and I are 26 years now, almost. Yeah, we'll be 26. 27? Ah. I was so sure I was like going to surprise her that I, I felt like we just had our 25th. That was a full year ago, ago. Man, time used to be a little slower, and I think it's just faster now, so forgive me. But there's a set apartness that happens where that's the only way marriages work. That's the only, Christ reveals his relationship to the church, and he says it's a, Paul says it's a mystery, but he's, he's not speaking about husbands and wives, he's speaking about Christ and the church, that the bridegroom's coming back for a bride. These this metaphors throughout the new covenant reality that there's a, there's a set aside-ness to our life where it's not just about, you know, being so perfect and constantly meditating and, and, and never letting us thoughts stray and going into a monastery someplace in the middle of the mountains so that you can actually live that little holy life completely set outside of reality. I don't believe that's what the gospel shows us. It means we're set in the world, but we're not of it. We're in everyday life, but our everyday life is not just for the sake of that day. It's for a purpose that we were set aside for, which is to bring light into that place, which is to bring a kingdom that's not of this world into the kingdom that we're, born, that we're living in, that we're working in, that we're born in. And when you begin to live that way, it suddenly puts purpose in your life because it's just, I mean, you think about the most exciting Thrilling spy movies, and to me, they're one of the most fun ones, is spy movies. It's, it's just so, it, it, 
it's just, it draws me in when you see someone who is in a foreign country. They're from a totally different, they're on a secret mission. Everyone thinks they're there just waiting, you know, carrying a, a butler's tray around with some hors d'oeuvres on it. But really, they're this highly skilled, there's all this, it's like they're masked, they're in behind the thing. And it's just like, you, even if the movie's kind of boring, when that's happening, you, there's like this sense of excitement where you realize they're behind enemy lines. They're, they're here for a purpose. Everyone thinks one thing, but they're really something else. Folks, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. The world looks and just sees whatever you see in the mirror. But that's not actually who you really are, but if you're a person of faith. Who you actually are is a secret underground agent that's bringing light into a dark place that when you open your mouth and speak, all of a sudden what comes out can shake the area around you. Your action can change an entire atmosphere because suddenly who you really are is revealed. There's been too much of people just... There's, there's been a lot of just running around just on blast, just blasting all this information, expecting people to just agree with our side because we're just putting everybody on blast. It doesn't work. It works through building relationships, as we just saw, through building bridges, through building connections with people that when they hit something that they can't figure out, they suddenly want to call you because they know there was something different about you. There was something in you. You become a piece of that person's answer, connecting them to Jesus. This is, that's exciting life. It's an exciting life to be able to live in this world, not bound by the system of this world, not limited by what's in your bank account or not in your bank account, not in any way even primarily aware of that, but primarily aware that we are here for a purpose, that someone has put us here who knows way more about us than we do, the one who created us, and he has said, if you'll just follow me, if you'll follow after what I'll show you as you follow me and obey my voice, your life will be way more exciting than the one you were going to come up with following the confirmation the world requires of all of our lives. Peter, I think, his, he got to live it. He got to carry the food to the 5,000 people on multiple occasions. He got to see the miracles, work them through his own hands. He got to see all that. But at the end, when he's just writing things down, and he's coming to the baseline of what allows this to go on for another generation, it's not about all those things. It's about just identify. You've been set apart. He says, be holy, because the one who called you is holy. All your conduct, because it's written, be holy, for I'm holy. Don't let it, I, so many times I, as a kid I heard that, that scripture preached and it just made me feel so unworthy and so blemished and so unset apart and so that how could God ever use me? I don't believe that's what Peter was trying to present in this passage. He's saying, guys, you're here but you're not of this place. God has sanctified you. He has set you apart. He's called you holy unto himself just like he did in Leviticus where he quotes, be holy for I'm holy as he chose the Israelite nation to be his chosen people. And so verse 17 says this, and if you call on the father, again, father, son, father, daughter, it's a relationship that he's drawing on. If you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. That doesn't sound too exciting or uplifting. You think when that person's walking around with the hors d'oeuvre tray in the spy movie, He's just having as much fun as the wedding guests are. I think that's what he sees. This isn't walking around being afraid. He says, walk around. He's like, be sober, be vigilant, be aware of your surroundings. Be aware that you've been set apart. You're in hostile territory. You're in a place where you technically don't belong, except you're on a mission. 
I've put you there on purpose. The angry, hostile coworkers, the hostile boss, whoever it is in your life, that person, you're there. You're under their radar. You're in their space. You're there not to take them out with an ice pick or something on the side of the tray. Sorry, my brain gets a little too visual on me. But you're, you're there for a prime moment when there's going to be an opening for you to say something that could have an impact on that person's life forever. You're set apart. You're holy. You're designated for a purpose. And he's saying to Conduct yourselves in your time and your stay here in fear, in, in this reverent awareness that I'm here for more than just what's on my cocktail tray. It's food, too. It wasn't actual cocktails, in case you're going to throw something at me for that. You know, the cocktail hour with the tray with the hors d'oeuvres, not cocktail drinks, okay? Unless, unless what he had you doing, then you'd be doing that. In verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. And then he lists them, just so that we're clear. Silver, gold. We weren't redeemed with things of this world. This is the next phrase I think is so cool. He says, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. It's probably as far as we're going to get through the through the text today, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. But guess what will happen if we don't allow the one who redeemed us and set us apart and we don't follow his purpose? We'll live our days here chasing silver and chasing gold. Because that's the most valuable stuff you can find here. It's what lets you have the maximum comfort that you can have, it, maximum power, maximum influence, maximum respect from this world. It's through the substance, through the wealth, the highest level of it that this world can give you. That's all you can aim for. And you'll try to redeem this sense of meaninglessness for your life. Or maybe it's not meaningless. Maybe it's not, not worth living, but it's just hollow. It's not as full as it should be. And there's something in you that knows that. There's got to be more to this. There's got to be something I'm missing because it's just not full yet. It's not saturated with purpose. And I just think it's incredible that he says aimless as the word to describe the conduct that we inherit from the traditions of our fathers. I had a great dad. On, this isn't a dig against natural dads. I hope you can hear where Peter's coming from. And I'm certainly hoping I'm presenting this the right way. He's talking about just the traditions of man where you go out and you do what you're supposed to do. You provide for your natural family and then you just go and become compost somewhere. That there was another reason that you were put here. It was more than just the natural stuff. And if you don't have an eternal purpose, you're just going to try to redeem your time and provide meaning for it with silver and with gold. But he says that stuff can't redeem you. You weren't redeemed with corruptible things. You were redeemed with incorruptible things, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Aimless, though. If you could pick a word for this generation, I would say that's probably the closest one. You could say, you know, rebellious, and maybe, maybe there's more strong words that you could use. At the sub-base of it all, I would just say it's aimless. And because there's no real target and because there's this aimlessness, they're actually not hitting any specific mark. Oh, if I could just change my gender, then I would be somebody that would be who I really am. Oh, if only I could just change my education. If only I was smarter, if only I had gone for the PhD instead of just stopping with the masters, if only I had this change, if only these different things were changed in my life, then I would be somebody. Then the world would recognize, what, then you'd have more silver and more gold. 
But those things can't redeem you to the purpose that Jesus has intended for your life. He's intended to set you apart so that you could be light in a dark world. So that when everyone's life is chasing the substance of this world, you could be pursuing his heart and his dream for you. Which is to simply know him. To simply relate to him as a friend, as a father, as a brother. As someone who's on your side, as, as Messiah, as deliverer. There's so many things as our healer. There's so many things that Jesus desires to be for us. And yet, if we just allow him to be some ancient history figure that might be true and might not be true, you'll miss the core of what's available for your life. It's not stuff. It's just not stuff. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to take care of. Let's just, let's just stand together. We're going to continue on with this. I hope there was something that was said today that just triggered something for you, that you feel a sense of purpose, that you're at least willing to acknowledge that God's got something in store for you. We'll pick it up in verse 19. If you want to read ahead, that's, that's going to be powerful. Let's just take a, a couple minutes in prayer. Father, we thank you. We just stand here before you. We know even as we've stood up, Lord, we've, we've all just started thinking maybe about the things that are going on the rest of this day. And Lord, we know our lives are full. Here in this culture, we know that this life is a full and busy life. There are always voices. There are always lists of things that we have to accomplish to feel like we're getting somewhere, that we're getting ahead, or that we're maybe just keeping up. But Lord, just beyond all that, just a little bit deeper than all that, is a reality that we did not make ourselves, that we did not create ourselves, we did not place ourselves here, that your word reveals it wasn't through the will of the flesh and the will of man and woman that brings us to this planet. It was through a plan that you established in heaven before time began. That you would place us here for a season, that you would number our days and you would show us of your goodness during our stay here on this planet. Lord, for many of us, we've seen that goodness and it's changed our lives and we've pursued you and we've come after you and we've said, Lord, we want to know you more each day. But Lord, there are so many who are still just confused. They're still just trying to make a determination somewhere between their mind and their heart. If this is really for real, if you really are the one who sees the beginning from the end. And Lord, for those, I just pray that you by your spirit would, in the way that they can understand, in the way that they can receive, find moments, Lord, to just reveal yourself to them. Lord, you know how to orchestrate the details of our life so much better than we do. Lord, you have led us this far. You've not brought us to a point to abandon us, that you are here with us to the end of this age at all times. Lord, I just pray that those that are sensing loneliness this morning, they came in feeling lonely. Even in a room full of people inside, they just feel like it's just them. Them and their thoughts, them and their whatever it is. Lord, I pray that you'd break through that today. That you'd help them to understand that they're not alone. That all they need to do is look to the one who's put purpose within them. Lord Jesus, when we look to you, we discover that life is worth living. Because you are alive. That you're not in a tomb someplace that we pilgrimage to, but you have chosen the human heart, the human soul to take up residence in. By the Spirit, we can all have the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily within us. The treasure of heaven in earthen vessels. Lord, we thank you that there will be opportunities this week 
I thank you that you will provide opportunities for those of us who have contained your presence and we know your truth, that we would have opportunities to share that. In small ways and big ways, Father, you orchestrate that. Help us to have seeing eyes and hearing ears, Lord. Truly the time is short. Truly the day is dark. But you are the light and you live within us, Jesus. Father, I pray a special blessing over every person that's here, that every family member that's not even in this room with them, that there would be a blessing that would extend through the families that are rooted in this place, that there would be just an increase of your spiritual understanding, awareness, your presence, Lord, that we would all grow more fully into the measure and the stature of Jesus Christ. For, Lord, it's for your glory, it's for your kingdom's sake that we ask these things. In Jesus' mighty name, God's people said, amen. amen.